Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we have the second interview in a series about animal feed that we've made with Wicked Leeks, the magazine for sustainable food and ethical business, which is produced by Riverford. And we'll also share some more of the conversations we had at the Oxford Real Farming Conference at the start of this year. Later, we'll hear from Nourish Scotland about the work they've been doing to help shape Scotland's new agriculture bill. But first, we meet a special guest who shared his meditation practice with the conference and talked to us about his connection to food and to nature. I am doing here at this um, Oxford Real Farming Conference a meditation in the morning uh, on Friday. Then I am chairing a session which is about moving and shifting from ego to eco. Satish Kumar is founder of Schumacher College and an editor of Resurgence and Ecologist magazine. Farming should be a source of joy rather than uh, misery and, and hard work and, and doing grudgingly. So I want to encourage people to see farming as a sacred activity and an activity which brings you joy and pleasure. And hard work should not be seen as something bad. Sometimes hard work makes you more resilient and strong. Satish ran some meditation sessions for OOFC at last year's conference. And they were so successful, he agreed to do more. He's been facilitating them online for the last year, with hundreds of people from all over the world meditating on nature. Nature is our spiritual guide. So we can learn from nature how to be compassionate, how to be kind, how to be generous, how to be non-discriminating. So I meditate and I lead meditation on earth, air, fire, water, and, and unity of all elements and unity of life. Meditation is medicine for the soul and spirit. So when you do farming, gardening, growing food, harvesting food, with mindfulness, heartfulness, with love, as a source of joy and a source of service. If you bring that kind of spiritual feelings, then your work becomes meditation. So meditation is not just something that you close your eyes and sit in a quiet room. That is good meditation. But everything doing mindfully, and heartfully, and joyfully, and as, as a sense of the sacred, then every activity is transformed into meditation. So I always encourage farmers, growers, gardeners to see their work not as a chore, not as a burden, not something they don't want to do, but they have to do it, not as kind of just earn income or earn some money or a source of economic growth, but do it as something spiritual activity. And so growing food, food is sacred. And, and food nourishes our soul, spirit, mind, as well as our body. Because if we do not eat food, not only our bodies will die, but our minds will die, our spirit will die, our soul will die. So food is a nourishment for our whole life. And therefore, treating Soil, treating land, treating plants, treating trees, treating seeds, treating that time of gardening and farming as a sacred activity. That kind of consciousness is what I'm trying to develop. 
hope can be passive. You hope that something will work out, something will turn up, uh, something will change. That is not enough. You have to make that hope be realized. In order to realize your hope, you have to do something about it. So I always say hope is not enough. You have to have a hope, you have to be an optimist, because if you are a pessimist, then you will not act. You will say, why bother? Nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to happen. So there's no point in doing anything. So pessimism does not lead to activism. In order to be an activist, you have to be an optimist. But optimism should lead to activism, not pessimism. So I always say that active hope means that if you want to see that there should be peace in the world, you should act for it. If you want to see ecology and sustainability and regenerative farming coming as a mainstream movement, then you have to do something about it. Speak about it, write about it, a farm um, uh, on the land. Do something. Without action, hope is hopeless. Hope is only good when it is followed by action. So active hope is an essential combination of the two words. I stay motivated because nature is my teacher and also nature is my love. And I feel that nature has given me so much. Nature has sustained me. Food, clothes, house, air, water. I cannot survive without nature. So it is important for me to give something back. It's a, nature is a gift, but I also have to give something back. Reciprocity. Mutuality. So I feel motivated to do something for nature by saying that don't pollute air, I'm doing something for nature. By saying don't put plastic in the oceans, I'm doing something for nature. When I say don't put sewage in the rivers, I'm doing something for nature. I'm motivated because I'm grateful to nature. That sense of gratitude motivates me, inspires me, and, and encourages me to be an activist in the defense of and the service of our precious planet Earth. If we don't look after our nature, if we don't look after our air and water and rivers and oceans and forests, we will have no life. So nature is giving us so much. I have two acres of garden and I have a beautiful stream going through my garden. And that's my love. I have been living in this place in small village in North Devon called Heartland. And I've been living there for more than 40 years. And I never want to move. I've been building the soil in this garden for the past 40 years. And when I am in the garden, I am very happy. So source of happiness is your garden for me. If I feel depressed, as you ask the question, if I feel upset, if I feel even angry, if I feel um, depressed or any problem I have, I go in the garden. The moment I start to touch the soil, I want to water the plants, I want to do something with the, with the garden, suddenly my anger disappears, my frustration disappears, my loneliness disappears. So my garden is my home. 
my garden is my community. The plants which I have, sweet corn, potatoes, carrots, adamami beans, spinach, cucumber, tomatoes, asparagus, they're all members of my family, my community. Land is my community. Land is my home. My garden is my home. And when I'm in the garden, I'm in the garden of Eden. I'm in heaven. I love my garden. I, I have a home, but I can move from that home easily. But I'm very difficult for me to move from my garden. This is why I'm staying there for the last 40 years and more. We all eat. And we need to be connected with our food. Without food, we cannot survive. We can have all the gadgets, all the jobs, all the name, fame, prestige, power, position, um, everything we can have. But if we have no food, we cannot survive. So food is the real basic of life. And so I want everybody, whether you are a prime minister or a president or a king or a beggar, or a priest, or a poet, or a writer, whoever you are, be involved in growing food. Even part-time, even few hours, having a garden is a great gift. Do not allow yourself to be without that gift. Make a small garden, even in the cities. So I would like to see everybody being involved with growing food. And cooking is also very much my love. I love cooking. I think writing a book, I've written books, I've edited magazines, I've done lecturing and speaking. All that is fine. But growing food and cooking food and eating food and celebrating food with the family, with the friends, and that joy, that is basics of life. And that's the sort of, all the other things are icing on the cake. But the cake is food and celebration and family and friends and that. So I would like to just say, if you are listening to me in this podcast, find a way of getting back to nature, getting back to soil. And if you don't have your own garden, find a friend who has a garden. Find some older people who cannot do gardening anymore. Go and help them. But be in touch with the soil. Soil is the source of life. Pete Ritchie is the Executive Director of Nourish Scotland and Anna Furroff is the organisation's Deputy Director. Nourish is a charity that focuses on food policy and practice. Their mission is to work for a fair, healthy and sustainable food system that values nature and people. And their system's approach to food means that their work is really wide-ranging. At ORFC, Anna and Pete joined representatives from Sustain, Foodsense Wales and Nourish Northern Ireland to explore how the devolved nations are diverging in their food and farming policy post-Brexit. So it's taken a while, but what we're seeing really is a sort of policy experimentation in the different four nations, reflecting obviously different politics, but also just different approaches and to some extent different landscape situations. You know, Scotland and Wales, very much livestock farming, not very much arable. You know, puts different pressures on the farm support system from, you know, England where you've got much more arable land. We asked Pete and Anna about their work on Scotland's agriculture bill. Nourish has been helping to gather ideas and opinions from the public. They've hosted over 20 workshops as part of the official consultation on the Scottish Government's proposals. 
So the bill is in developmental stages and it's just been through a sort of extended period of public consultation. So the government outlined its vision for Scotland's farming back in March uh, last year. And that vision is for Scotland to become the leader in regenerative and sustainable agriculture. So it's quite a bold vision. And this period of consultation in autumn last year was really about trying to think what are the financial mechanisms, the subsidy mechanisms to support that. We felt it was really important that more people than just farmers and crofters are engaged in the conversation about the future of farming in Scotland because we all eat and so we all need to have a say about you know what is the shape of farming in the future but also what is the shape of public subsidy and you know how public money is spent to support agriculture. It's going to be introduced into Scottish Parliament probably in September next year when they come back from the summer but it's going to be a framework, an enabling bill, essentially. And a lot of the focus of the formal consultation was on giving Scottish government powers that it you know, lost, obviously, with Brexit. You know, so it's, it's got to formally get those powers back in law. Um, and the Scottish government's very keen to get the mechanics of that you know, so they can, they're acting within the law. But obviously what farmers are interested in, what the general public's interested in is, so where's the money going to go? And is it going to stay going to the same place, it's the same people? Um, and obviously the people who are getting the money at the moment are quite keen that that carries on. Whereas a lot of people say there's, we could spend the money much better. So there's two parallel processes going on. The formal bill process, which will go through Parliament over the following year, but at the same time developing the actual policy and then that policy will be translated into secondary legislation following the primary legislation going through. And that's really where the heat's going to be. In terms of process, what was really interesting is, you know, just how much investment there is amongst people in having a stake in that conversation and how keen people were to really learn about the details of that, not just sort of general sentiments, but actually the mechanics of the scheme and the depth of those conversations and also you know, the value of bringing people who produce the food with people who eat the food together and the richness of those conversations. Both sides are informed by that process and I think come out of it, you know, yeah, much better informed and those conversations are much more detailed and nuanced and richer as a result of that. We clustered the workshops, the report, into different groups, the urban group, the rural group, and then the crofting group and the online group. And some of the themes which came out were really fascinating, really strong thing about a living wage, I mean, and workers' rights, huge thing about new entrants, and that ran across all the groups, you know, let's get more young people into farm, let's support them. For the crofters, it was, how can we help some crofters retire and young people take over? But for the crofters, especially this thing about food was so important, you know, they didn't want to be just like, you know, hanging around on the land, they wanted to be producing some food for people. A lot of stuff about local food economy, it came up both in the urban ones, but also really interesting in all the rural ones, you know, how do we get more food in the public plate? How do we connect farms with their customers? How do we get other routes to market? How can we do processing? And then lots and lots of stuff about advice and, you know, really having good farm support and advice to navigate the new schemes, the importance of farmers talking to each other. So people were really, really keen to see an investment in advice and training, changing the agricultural curriculum. Just loads of good ideas came up from people. In 2022, the Scottish Parliament passed another bill, the Good Food Nation Bill. According to the Scottish Government, the bill enshrines in law the Scottish Government's commitment to Scotland being a good food nation, where people from every walk of life take pride and pleasure in, and benefit from, the food they produce, buy, cook, serve and eat every day. The bill doesn't include all of the measures that Nourish and other members of the Scottish Food Coalition were campaigning for, 
but it's still a big achievement. Obviously, we do want, and we really encourage that the Scottish Government is connecting the Agriculture Bill with the Good Food Nation Bill, you know, because at the end of the day, if we don't sort of think of food and farming at the same time, we're not going to get very far. We want to see a lot of money moving up the tiers in, in the sort of Scottish jargon, which is towards things like organics and agroforestry, big-scale investments in those system change approaches to farming, support for destocking, you know, so people go back towards feeding at livestock on sort of grass and not buying a lot of concentrate and managing, you know, what, with what they've got. So low input, often more profitable farming for people. We want to see, I mean, we want to see money move to local authorities so they can support local food economies and market gardens. We'd quite like to see some more glass houses in Scotland, a glass house sector developing. We want, but we also want to see support this advice and support and farmers learning from each other absolutely crucial we run a project with a number of different organizations um, on agroecology and the transition and what we found from that obviously is that you get farmers are really good at learning from each other if you facilitate it in the right way and you help people feel safe and comfortable and not judged and allowed to fail and make mistakes and talk about those things so we want to see a big investment in that sort of cultural change stuff but obviously also a lot of money going into to routes to market for people and local food supply chains. We've got to join up these things, otherwise you end up with a, a subsidy system which sort of rewards practices changing but doesn't reward system change. It's complicated and I think our, our job over the next year is to work with the environmental sector, climate change sector, the small farmers, the agroecological people, to try to keep pushing that vision of systemic transformative change um, but at the same time not pretending that it's straightforward because it's really not and part of that challenge is also to make sure that you know the scheme starts by meeting people where they're at because if scotland is to become a leader in sustainable and regenerative ag it means that a lot of people have to buy into that vision and have to begin that journey of transformation and so i think the really difficult you know balancing act is both you know, meeting people where they're at and allowing them to stretch a little bit, but then also keeping the pace of change so that we can meet the climate targets, the biodiversity targets and all the other objectives that we have as a country. It's clear that it wants the bill to translate its vision for sustainable regenerative agriculture into practice. You know, so that connection's really clear. At the moment, the bill is an enabling bill and it gives Scottish government powers over quite a number of areas. Can we make payments for this? Can we make payments for that? And the mechanics of translating that vision to action haven't really been articulated yet. We've put forward some sort of principles for how you might do that and how you might connect the vision in the bill to what we actually do in the, in, in the legislation and in the subsidy schemes. But those haven't been you know, widely adopted yet. And there is still, I think, a, you know, there's a commitment to land sharing. So Scottish Government has said on a number of occasions, you know, it's not food or nature, it's food and nature which is really helpful. And the farming union NFUS, you know, most of the time supports that vision, but like things like Ukraine war, suddenly it's like, let's plow field, you know, hedgerow to hedgerow and forget all the green crap. And that's understandable. They get a lot of pressure from their members. Um, they've had a lot of challenges over input costs this year, but at the same time, we do need this sort of consistent direction of travel. We can't afford a scheme which doesn't have buy-in across the board, across the political parties, and is durable enough. Obviously, it's going to evolve over time, but the basic framework is durable enough that everybody can see which way it's going and make decisions accordingly. Yeah. There's another couple of things that are you know, an, an important part of that vision. 
which is you mentioned the food and you mentioned the climate and nature. Part of it is also people and making sure that people can work and live sustainably on the land and that there's more diversity in the sector. And part of it is also, you know, at the center of it, I suppose, is this commitment to just transition. So creating a sector that, yes, is flourishing and diverse, but that also as we transition towards, you know, more climate compatible farming, we are also trying to fix some of the injustices and inequalities in the current system. And that too is quite encouraging, I think. Particularly in the Oxford Real Farming Conference, where we have so many people, you know, from Landworks Alliance and from the small farm sector, you know, it's really important that the bill puts some practical measures in place, I think, to support that sector. You know, it creates a lot of jobs, it connects people to food, you know, it provides lots of services as well as the sort of production. Um, and I think it gives young people a route into agriculture, which otherwise they don't have. And I think really, whether it's a small farm scheme, whether it's a market gardening scheme, whether, as we said, it's giving money to local authorities so they can support the, the new entrance, I think for us that's this, unless we have young people who think that, you know, growing food is a good job to do and their way of saving the planet, their way of saving nature, their way of keeping people healthy, their way of, you know, bringing joy into their lives, then we don't have a future in farming. We just have a bunch of robots. Small-scale farming, I think of it as a sort of human-scale farming. Um, and what was really interesting to me in having conversations in the Crofton counties is really about... You know, it's not just about producing food, it's about the whole culture and heritage and identity that goes with it. And there's a really important seed there, I think, for a better food culture for all of us, which is why, yeah, that being a central part of that future support system is really key. If you'd like to learn more about the peer learning project that Pete mentioned for farmers, crofters and growers, then check out the short episode that we released called Agroecology Enabling the Transition. Last month, we had Jerry Olford from the Innovative Farmers Research Network talking to Wicked Leaks editor Nina Pullman about issues with global soya production. After they'd spoken, he took her to meet Mark and some of the soya-free and pastured chickens on his farm. Hi, Mark. So, Hi. um, could you tell me why was it that you wanted to go soy-free on your farm? What was the kind of motive behind that for you? So, um... Soya has a lot of connotations and, and issues around sustainability. I have mixed feelings, I have to say, because it, it's um, enabled sort of large-scale, cheaper production of food. But at what cost beyond the finance is, is what I would say. We're looking to, to source as, as much as possible, as locally as possible, and, and soya obviously doesn't fit that narrative very well. We were looking at introducing broiler chickens um, about four years ago and met up with the guys from Ethical Butcher and they were specifically looking for somebody to produce a chicken soya free. We're being told it couldn't be done and I figured that a pasture reared chicken, if it could be done in any setting then that would be where it would work because they get such a more varied diet from the, from the model of pasture rearing. We start them off in, in a brooder, uh, pretty much the same as, as any chicken situation because they, they need heat when they're just a day old. Uh, and then as they grow at two to three weeks old, they can come out onto pasture. And then the principle is that they're moved daily. 
Um, obviously here we're using these, these small um, shelters. We've also got some poly tunnels to, as we've scaled up to larger situation. But um, the same with both of it, the, the principle is they're moved daily onto fresh pasture, so they're getting new clean grazing every day. They're following the cattle loosely, um, not uh, to any rigid scale, but uh, they are following cattle and, and also sheep. We've got sheep here as well, so they they are then scratching around in the in the dung pats and helping the parasite burden by desiccating the dung pats and the and the worm eggs and what have you, and gaining some of their diet from that, because it's natural for a, a chicken to to feed on that sort of thing. You know, they're, they're, they're omnivores. They insects and worms and as well as as they will eat the grass and the clovers and they love docks as well which is <laughs> quite nice to see them eating them the the whole principle around pasture reared is, is to keep them moving and then they're sort of integrated into the rest of the farm enterprise and they're obviously in keeping them moving they're, they're spreading their own muck we don't have to clean out a shed when they're finished you know they just move them on and you can see as grass regrows, the the benefit of that, you know, it's uh, it grows back a lot quicker than the surrounding areas. And you have to add something into that in terms of what they eat as well. Yes, why yes. Why do they why do they need that um, extra feed to start with? Obviously, if you were to keep them like just two or three in each of these sheds and and, and move them daily, then they could probably survive on that. But um, to do it at any scale and and to produce, a, you know, a, a commercial number of chickens, um, they're going to need their diet supplemented. And, and we use a wheat-based diet, which would be, you know, from that point of view, it's, it's much the same as any chicken would be eating. It's what we use for the protein element that, that we've sort of looked to change. That's the magic formula then. So what, yeah. what have you got in yours? Can you share it with us? So the, the main grower ration that we use, it, we've played around with it. We're using beans, um, peas and rapeseed meal and the beans and the peas and the wheat are all sourced locally the rapeseed meal at the moment we're having sent down from further up country and they have it in front of them all the time so it is a, a, a fairly major portion of their diet but it is amazing how much uh, they will actually graze and, and get from the pasture as well so and um, am i right in thinking that your chickens grow at a slightly different pace because you wouldn't necessarily be able to use that feed mix for any kind of chicken based farm would you yeah the the indoor commercial you know intensive chicken that is kept indoors all its life um wouldn't grow at anything like fast enough pace for them on our diet these perform um similarly or slightly slower to a situation if they were on a normal free-range farm at the end result i guess you know obviously at the end of it you're selling your chickens the ethical butcher it's a delicious bird i mean have you seen any kind of impact on kind of the end product oh definitely well we eat it ourselves <laughs> um and just we've had a lot of feedback from customers because we sell it locally as well and you get lots of customers saying oh best chicken we've ever had and ethical butcher has, has said similar you know the um glenn at the ethical butcher you know sort of did a taste test at the beginning i sent him home with one when he first came to see us and uh, he was chuffed to bits with it. And do you think there's a difference there? So, you know, what, what I'm trying to get at is why wouldn't everybody sort of switch out of soy where you've got that kind of sustainability impact? What, what, what was the difficulty for you with, with moving over? Well, I think the, 
the, the flavour and, and that comes from the, it being slower growing and a more diverse diet. And modern society has opted for cheap food and our proportion of income spent on food has gone down and down. More so in this country than a lot of other European countries, actually. And as a result, you know, the farmers have had to respond to that and produce stuff as cheaply as possible. And I think that comes at a cost. I, I can't get away from the fact that, that these chickens taste so much better than a standard intensively reared indoor chicken. Soy has... Um, is easily scaled, is, is grown at large scale, um, obviously in a, in a very monoculture situation and it has um, implications with um, rainforest clearance and what have you as well, which is, you know, the downside. But it has enabled fast growth at a, at a relatively cheap price. And do you think what you're feeding costs a bit more from the different, you've got a byproduct coming from rapeseed oil um, and peas and beans, obviously from local farms. Does it feel more expensive for you to buy that? It is a little more expensive, but we're also small scale, so there's obviously economies of scale losses there for us. I think, I think the main cost would be in the additional growing time. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at 14 weeks to finished which is a, a fairly large, you know, a two to two and a half kilo oven-ready bird, which would be bigger than a lot would be doing. But that is, um, uh, there's a lot of extra cost involved in the time scale. Obviously, you know, time is money in terms of labour, in terms of housing requirements and, and everything else. And what do you think would persuade other farmers? I mean, have you spoken to other farmers and explained what you're doing? Are people interested in it? What do you think would kind of help people, you know, replicate what you're doing? I have come across people who have been keen to start it. Certainly, there's several small-scale ones that are interested in the pasture-reared element. The soya-free, there's not as many interested in that. I know of one or two larger commercial units that have trialled it, and with mixed results, I think, from what I hear. It would be nice to think we could move away from so much soya consumption as, you know, as a country, as a... As a, as a human race, really, but uh, yeah, I, I don't decry that it, it is a, a, a more expensive system as it stands. It, it all adds to the diversity, you know, of um, of what's being grown, and um, that to be able to not have monocultures is good for everywhere concerned, really. The, for our local environment and for everything. Yeah, and you've got almost a self-sufficient system here in terms of the fertilisation from the, the chickens and the moving of the livestock. It's, it's kind of all part of the, the yes. system, isn't yeah. it? We've, we've stopped using fertiliser here, um, so, the, so the chickens are a, a big part of that. They're obviously um, putting a lot of nitrogen back into the pasture as well as P and K as well. It's a sort of a, helps close the system, if you like. But we are still buying in, obviously, with the wheat and the, and the protein supplements, but um, it, it's reducing the loop, closing the loop, and also reducing the, the miles involved because we source as locally as we can. If you want to learn more about this series, you can head to the Wicked Leaks website to read more about soya and animal feed and also watch a short documentary that they've produced. If you're interested in more stories on sustainable food and ethical business, you can sign up online to receive the weekly edition of the Wicked Leaks magazine.
This episode of Farmerama was made by Abby Rose, Joe Barrett and me, Katie Revel, with additional recordings by Nina Pullman, who's the editor at Wicked Leaks. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team. Olivia Oldham, Dora Taylor, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Fran Bailey. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Thank you to everyone on our Patreon. Your support helps us in bringing you the stories of regenerative farming around the world each month. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to join, please visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama where you can choose your level of support.